Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I am absolutely delighted to bring you Michaela Loach, who is a brilliant young climate activist. Um, And we just have an amazing discussion. This has been one of my favorite conversations so far about organizing today within the climate movement in the kind of wake of the Corbyn moment, how Michaela engages young people in organizing online and offline, and the benefits of a strategy that kind of brings together lots of different modes of organizing. I think Michaela is so impressive and I'd really encourage you to follow her and follow the projects that she mentions. Um, I'll put some links in the description to this episode. So thanks again to Michaela. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in and thanks especially to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. Please do consider supporting us on Patreon. We are patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link to that in the description. Um, And if you want to support the show in another way, please consider sharing this episode or other episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A quick word from our sponsors before my interview with Michaela Loach. This episode of a world to win is brought to you by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left wing titles perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is Palestine, a socialist introduction, edited by Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean. Palestine, a socialist introduction, systematically tackles a number of important aspects of the Palestinian struggle for liberation, examining both the historical and contemporary trajectory of the Palestine solidarity movement in order to glean lessons for today's organisers and compellingly lays out the argument that in order to achieve justice in Palestine, the movement has to take up the question of socialism regionally and internationally. As Noura Erekat puts it, The book connects the past to our present and, despite the daunting odds before us, sustains a commitment to a socialist future where all of us are free. Find Palestine, a socialist introduction at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the UK and US receive free shipping on orders over £20 or $25 respectively. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. I am here with the brilliant climate activist, Michaela Loach, who we are very lucky to have on the show. How are you doing today, Michaela? I'm I'm doing well. Um, Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me as well. I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while. And I'm going to start by asking you a question that I'm sure you've been asked many times before. In fact, I know you've been asked it many times before (laughs) because I've read some interviews with you. But I thought your answer is interesting and I want you to kind of share it. So Mm. how did you get involved with the climate movement? Yeah, I think I got involved in a bit of a roundabout way. Um, I think for a long time growing up, I didn't really connect with climate as an issue for such a long time. I thought, especially someone who's racialized as black, as someone who's a woman, like I felt like there were other more pressing issues that like my communities were facing. And so I thought that the climate crisis was something for like people who didn't have anything more pressing to worry about. That was my kind of misunderstanding, I think, of the crisis. Um, and I was more into like migrant rights, justice and that kind of stuff and that, that kind of organizing against the hostile environment in the UK and, in, and on the um, French border. And like while I was doing that kind of organizing, I started to become more aware of like the gravity of the climate crisis. But all I was being kind of told to do in the media or around was just to change my lifestyle choices and to reduce my consumption and mm. to like change my like shopping habits or um, what I ate or how I dressed myself and those kind of things. And so I started doing all of those different things, boycotting fast fashion, like going vegan. I even tried being zero waste for a while because that's what we were kind of told to do. And 
like I was getting this intense climate anxiety where I couldn't sleep at night because I was realizing how big this crisis was and how small these actions that I was taking were in, in comparison. And so there's one point at which I think, um, I don't remember the exact moment, but like I came across this idea of climate justice, which links this kind of migrant justice work that I've been doing with the climate crisis. And it showed me that like to tackle the climate crisis, we also need to tackle issues of injustice because this climate crisis is a product of the same oppressive systems of the same issues that have caused migrant injustice, that have caused all these other issues, that racism, these other issues that I care about. And that actually, if we tackle this climate crisis, this kind of big threat that we're all facing, with awareness of its connections to these other systems of oppression, to white supremacy, to capitalism, to like exploitation, then not only do we can we stop this crisis from being as bad as it could be, but also we have the opportunity to create a better and more liberated world for all of us. But the only way that we can do that is through like actual organizing and, and kind of coming together and doing these things as a collective, not just doing like small lifestyle changes separately. And that's how I ended up kind of in climate. It was a bit of a, a bit of a roundabout way, I think. And I think I came to climate from like a very human perspective, um, mm. less so from the like polar bears and icebergs perspective than maybe other people. But I think that that's so essential and that we don't talk about that side of it enough. Yeah, I mean, that does seem to be a bit of a shift that has taken place, certainly you know, over my kind of time where I've been active in political campaigning, like I think I had a similar experience to you where initially I was much more focused on kind of, you know, class and class politics and mm-hmm. um, questions of like economic justice and even actually kind of like, you know, international questions when I was doing my um, African studies degree, but never really connected that to like what then seemed like the kind of hippy dippy eco warrior wear a hair shirt climate movement. <laughs> and it does seem to have been like a big shift over the last maybe like 10 years where that's mm. really been connected to race, to the economy, to these much broader social issues. Do you think that you kind of owe that, that the understanding of that shift in part to um, just like the broadening out of the climate movement and campaigning that has taken place in other areas of that movement? I mean, for sure, like there have been people who have been doing work to try and connect climate to other issues of injustice for so, so, so long and that haven't really been being listened to. And I think that it was the 2018 report from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that was kind of like the big wake up call for a lot of people that I think also really woke people up to like the human impacts of this crisis because it was really showing like how some areas are being way more impacted than others but this work has been being done by by so many people for so long I even think about how like at the start of the kind of the start of the modern day climate movement in like the 1960s it's just such a shame because it was going on it was kind of beginning at the same time as the civil rights movement um, um, in the US was happening at the same time and the disability rights movement all these other like social justice issues for me it's just such a shame that like there wasn't connections being made straight away then that that would be such an amazing time for coalition building between these different movements but there was almost this like separation from even the like inception of the climate movement which is just like is really disappointing because I think that we're so much stronger when we come together and we saw that through like the COP26 coalition over like the last big climate conference with the UN they were kind of getting like unions and racial justice groups and migrant justice groups and all these groups doing um different like actions to try and get a liberated world all together behind climate and showing how this is an issue that can actually kind of connect all of our liberation groups and make us fight for something together and and make it more likely we're going to win if we all work together as well so I think there's a Mm. lot of there can be a lot of hope when when you look into like where coalitions have been have been built around this kind of stuff as well. 
Yeah, I mean, and some of what you've been saying, it really brings out to me this tension that we see everywhere between individualism and collective action. Mm. Because you mentioned Mm. like that feeling of having just crippling anxiety over what was going to happen to the climate. And I'm sure that is a feeling that a lot of our listeners will be familiar with. And I think that feeling connects to a sense of one's own impotence when you think about the scale of the challenges that we face and you look at those as an individual you confront those challenges as an individual Mm -hmm. they do seem completely and utterly impossible to deal with but when you're part of a much broader movement a much broader social group then it feels much more like stuff feels much more doable and it's almost like that has been a big part of reactionary politics over the last Mm. several decades really has been to convince us to try and confront these problems as individuals. So Mm. to like, you know, track our carbon footprints, like the big fossil fuel companies want us to do or like (laughs) stop eating meat or whatever. I'm wondering like how you like feel about that, that contrast between individualism and and collective action Mm. and how you've, yeah, how you've kind of confronted that in your own campaigning. Yeah. I think when it comes to carbon footprint, especially like that's like the kind of epistemy of individualism within climate movement or climate action and the idea of of a carbon footprint was popularized by bp like they came up with this and popularized it because they realized that if we get everyone distracted about thinking about their own impact which much of that is is only it's only that impact because of systems that are out of many individuals control then it will like make people waste their time like maybe going to like 10 different supermarkets to get plastic this is what i was doing going to 10 different supermarkets to get plastic free groceries rather than like coming together in a group and being like how can we make it that we live in a system where we don't have to create this much waste or we don't have to have this much of an impact i think that like making ourselves or separating ourselves from each other is one of the greatest like weapons that's used by the capitalist system or by these companies mm. to try and take us all down there's a um there's a really um good musical this is really niche um I hope people enjoy this but Hades Town is like this folk like jazz rock musical about uses greek mythology to talk about um fossil fuels climate change and capitalism and it's like really really great but one of the biggest parts of it because it uses the story of Eurydice and Orpheus and like the whole thing is that he has to like in order to take the Greek mythology is that in order, to, in order to take her out of hell, he has to walk and he's not allowed to look check behind behind him if she's there. And at the end of the musical, it's not a spoiler because it's a Greek mythology, um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> at the end of the musical, the whole thing is meant to be that like he allows the workers to leave hell, which is like this metaphor of capitalism, mm-hmm. but only if they walk like in a straight line and aren't allowed to see if anyone's behind you. And the whole like kind of metaphor within that, and in the end, he does look behind because he's, he's scared that he's on his own is that if you divide and conquer people, that's when we feel like we are alone in doing this and we feel like we're the only ones standing up and raising our heads and we, and it makes us weaker. And that's why I think that it's important for us to like realise that we have people behind us. We're not alone in caring about this stuff. And actually, if we join a movement, if we join a group of people doing this stuff, not only will we feel like less alone and, and better, but we will actually be able to make so much of a bigger impact than just trying to do it alone. And that's one, one thing that's given me the most kind of hope in the world. I think people ask me a lot, like if you if you're feeling like, how, what do I do about climate anxiety? I feel like really anxious. What should I do? And I'm like, do like join a group and, and take action because that's the way that we'll find hope because we'll become that hope. Like for me, hope isn't this, I don't know, it's not this like metaphorical, like intangible thing. It's like based on, on evidence of how change has happened in the past and it's happened through collective movements. It's not happened um, just due to exceptional individuals. Like those people have played a part, but they haven't been everything. And I think that we're deliberately told like a specific version of history which focuses on exceptional individuals on on leaders and not 
on the reality that was like there were like thousands of people who came together instead and that's what actually created the change and Andrew Davis writes really well about this as well and that's someone that I kind of look to a lot for um Mm. for kind of guidance on like how do we resist individualism and how do we actually come to together as a collective um but it's hard especially in this world of like social media where everything is (laughs) very individualized and people are very much put on pedestals I mean I definitely have been a lot but I think it's really important that we resist that narrative and instead um find a way to come together yeah, I mean, I kind of want to talk to you about that, actually. Um, that was like a beautiful metaful, by the way, the story. That I you hope did. it made sense. <laughs> no, totally. Like, it's absolutely brilliant. Like, I literally couldn't have put it better myself. But the point you raised at the end is something that I want to ask you about, because, so you're like 23, right? Mm-hmm. No, 24, actually. 24, okay. And like, I'm 28, nearly 29, which on the surface doesn't feel like a big difference. But actually, mm-hmm. if I think about where I was in my kind of like, you know, campaigning life cycle if that's a thing (laughs) at your age it was a very very different time because it was you know before the rise and fall of Corbynism there seemed to be a really coherent political project that come out of several years of struggle in like the anti-austerity movement the anti-racist movement things that emerged from the financial crisis it felt like we were kind of moving towards something and not just in the UK but around the world as well and now there's you like you and your generation will have come of age watching the rise and fall of Corbynism and of Bernie Sanders Mm. and of Podemos and of you know many of these other socialist um, attempts at electoral politics how did that affect your views of organizing politically and actually of collective action in general because I feel like and maybe this is like an overgeneralization based on things I'm seeing on TikTok but like I feel (laughs) like there is a kind of a bit more suspicion of like politics and political organizing among young people, even if there is still this like very strong critique of political institutions and capitalism and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's that's a really like um, interesting observation. I think that that is, I think I focus most of my energy, and maybe, and now I'm reflecting, like maybe it is because of all these different things that have happened, but I've like focused most of my energy like outside of the like electoral system and more so on like grassroots organizing kind of outside of that and like trying to form things and put pressure from the outside rather than trying to change it from the inside and it might it might have been informed by like seeing the the rise and fall of that stuff for for me it's it's mostly been informed I think by like reading a lot of like how the biggest changes in in different kind of movements has happened in the past and like how much I I think I sit on more of the like on the like abolition or reform side of arguments I tend to like lean more to the like abolition side of I think that the system as a whole has a huge problem and that I'm not sure how much like trying to make the system itself a bit better is the direction that I personally want to be like acting in but I think I definitely gained a lot of it's, it's really interesting how like, even a few years can make such a big difference. So I gained a lot of hope from like both the Corbyn movement and from the um, Bernie Sanders movement. I think I was, I was more watching those from afar, I guess, or not as, as inherently. I mean, for me, like those kind of movements are what inspired me to get into. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't think I'm making that much sense. here. No, you are. And like, I think yeah. it really brings to mind a kind of a weakness within like the movement itself, whereby a lot of us who were really heavily involved in it Mm. came to identify with it so much and like invest so much of ourselves in it that we stopped being able to like, as you say, see it from afar. And that's something that we could have learned from history is that these kinds of electoral, political moments, movements, whatever, rise and fall, but those Mm. broader ecosystems of like, you know, activism and organizing in communities, nationally, direct action, whatever, 
do outlast those mm-hmm. those movements and we kind of forgot about that for a minute I think um yeah, so I, mean, yeah. I think that's probably like I think part of possibly like my hesitation with in being involved in those in like those two examples for as an example is that I recognize like there's like an expiry date kind of mm. in those sort of like you're working towards this one goal and behind kind of like one person or campaign and then you move on to the next thing after and I think I've like quite enjoyed like the kind of quieter like long-term work of like we're trying mm-hmm. to build something but maybe the part of me is like not wanting to be disappointed in the same way because I remember like the feelings of so many so many sat I was talking yeah. to my parents about this of like have you ever had a general election where you've been happy <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is it just me? Like, is it just my like generation? But um, yeah, I think that's the the difficulty is I think that like, there's obviously so many limitations. And that's why I think that I don't want anyone to like lean there. In, and this is one thing that I think is also is like, I don't want anyone to lean their entire hope on like an election, because that's mm. not where like all the change happens at all. Like, I think it's, especially if we zoom out into the whole world, like just outside of not even just like the US or the UK, like, yeah, there have been so many wins that have been made through elections, especially on top of South America, because that's where I am now. But also most of that has happened because of pressure that's been being put on, like, outside of those campaigns and not really within them. Um, and so I think that we can, like, yeah, I think zooming out is always a good thing. It's good to, like, have a focus, but I think that, yeah, getting some perspective is also good. Yeah, I think that is a very good summary. And also, like, a really nice and not you know, depressing, I guess, for lack of a better word, summary of events. Because I think a lot of, for a lot of people who kind of came through Corbynism, there is a sense of like, oh, well, we lost and now we've got to try, you know, doing things a different way and that's a defeat. But actually the way you're framing it is like, well, no, you know, these things rise and fall and like we've got to make sure that we're putting as much time and effort into changing the conditions in which that happens as we are into the the thing itself. So I thought that was yeah. mature and refreshing and yeah a good response I think like I just think that zooming out for the whole world is so helpful for anyone who's like organizing in like left spaces because I think we focus so much on like if the if we're like losing in the UK or in the US or whatever then we're like losing globally when actually if you look at like South America like so much change has happened and it's leading the way in so many ways and so many countries have had like revolutions that have then and and completely changed like the systems that they're living under I think that that is really encouraging and I think that everything we do in the world is so interconnected and like having that and having a realization of that is the only way that I'm able to kind of keep going. Cause I think if we focus too much on our like individual campaigns, like losses or wins, then we can get really like bogged down and like really sad about everything that's going on. When actually, if we realize that we won't even realize the impacts of what we're doing, like people won't realize the impacts of people, the organizing that people did within the Corbyn movement and to, for even not even for years to come. Like we won't know the real impact of the organizing we've been doing because the mm. world like kind of goes onto these tipping points that we'll not know when they're going to come as well. So I think that that's the only way I'm able to keep organizing to be honest, because otherwise like you just like feel like everything's going to shit a lot of the time when actually yeah. um, we have to realize that we don't know what's coming. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So let's talk a little bit then about some of the campaigns that you've been involved in. So first, the Stop Cambo campaign. What happened, do you think, in the end? Well, tell us a bit about the campaign first. And then you won something of a victory. But what was the nature of that victory? And how much did it have to do with, um, with the campaign itself? Yeah, so basically Stop Cambo was a campaign to, to stop the, and is still the campaign to stop the Cambo oil field. So 
basically in the summer of last year, um, so the same year that COP was happening, COP26 was happening in Glasgow, a group of organizations like had been doing some research into oil fields that were coming up for approval in the North Seas. North Seas just like off the coast of Scotland. And we saw that um this massive oil field, this Cambria oil field, was set to be approved within the next few months. Like at the time we saw it, it was set to be approved two months later, and that was like around summer of 2021. Um and basically a coalition of groups came together and we're like, we're gonna stop this oil field from being approved for far too long. Um there hasn't been like enough focus on oil and gas in the North Sea, like from the mainstream, because I think it's been something that people have been quite scared to focus on because there's a lot of, it's complicated, basically. I think there's like a lot of things around like jobs and and thinking about the UK and like the economy here and blah, blah. But we all came together and we're like, we're going to change the narrative on, on North Sea oil and gas and on just transition in the UK. And we're going to stop this oil field from being approved. Um, at that time, that was like a very big ask. And I don't think that we thought we were actually going to do it, but we thought we might just make a statement about it. And um, we launched this campaign because um, basically the emissions from Cambo from the burning and production of the field would be 10 times the annual emissions of Scotland from just this one oil field alone. And already the approved oil fields that are being extracted from in the North Sea would make more than enough oil and gas than we need in this country to like make it past transition more than that um in the uk 80 percent of oil is exported to other countries and like in the world so it's not even like it's it's necessary for energy security or anything like that or any of the kind of lies that they will push but we started campaigning around it lots of different groups lots of different things went on we in scotland a group of us organized um an occupation of the uk government building which we occupied that building for about um a day and had a big rally um to kind of launch the campaign down in London people occupied or, or did like um actions outside of shells buildings and we kind of had it went from every different angle we had a concerted media campaign um so making sure the camera was getting in the press everywhere we had um Green Door Rising people challenging Nicola Sturgeon and um, other politicians about it we made it so that by the time COP happened. Not only had Cambo not been approved yet when it was meant to be being approved um, way before then, but also at COP26, so this big UN climate conference in Glasgow, every kind of journalist was asking Boris Johnson or any political leader in the UK about the Cambo oil field, which is a huge, huge win um, for this campaign because previously North Sea oil and gas wasn't really being focused on. Like we had um, CNN journalists asking Boris Johnson about it. We had John Kerry, who's like the energy person in the US like talking about it publicly we had the head of the UN talking about it like everyone was talking about this oil field and how the UK as saying they're a climate leader needs to actually lead and say no to oil all new oil and gas projects because also during this time the IEA the International Energy Agency which are like a super conservative like definitely not Raj organization they had even said that we cannot have any new investment in oil and gas if we want a livable future so basically after like six months of campaigning, which isn't even that long in like the, the grand scheme of things, um, something happened that we didn't even think would happen. Like we, that same week that um, we got this um, announcement, we'd been actually planning like different scenarios um, of what would happen with the campaign and how we'd react to them. And, and many of those scenarios were like, Cambo gets approved, what do we do then? Or like the government rejects Cambo, what do we do then? And we hadn't planned for Shell, um, the company that owned 30% of the field to drop out completely. So Shell are like the bad guys of oil and gas. Of, I mean, they're all bad guys, but they're like some of the, the real bad guys that they were taking to court recently and told by the courts they have to reduce their emissions. And they tried to appeal that verdict. Um, they have literally been involved with murdering indigenous activists in Nigeria. Like they are truly the worst and truly do not have a conscience. And the fact that they dropped off from the 
the field, it wasn't because they'd suddenly decided, oh, we're going to be, we're a good company now. It was because we'd made this project uninvestable. Like Mm. all of this campaigning had made it so that it wasn't viable to run this oil field for this massive company that usually would want to do these kind of things. Um, so that was a massive, massive win. And then we all like celebrated because then Sticker Point Energy, the other company that owned the rest of the field, would have to find another backer, which is really complicated. And then even a month later, Sticker Point Energy then announced that um, they're indefinitely pausing the project um, because they also didn't have like insider um, sources said that this was a death knell for the North Sea oil and gas industry. Wow. And that is a huge thing to for, for that to come from like insiders. Um, that is truly wild um and it they even cited that it was our campaigning which has led to that and that's in a signal that's that like honestly amazing yeah. like there aren't that many campaigns that can count that kind of success for how long organizing like it, for six months like in six, six months but the thing is our six months of organizing came off the back of like like decades of organizing by organizers in scotland and like all yeah. over the uk who have been like who laid the groundwork and that's why i talk about tipping points like for for these other organizers they've seen these oil fields come through i have friends who are talking to me about how before cambo like they couldn't believe how that we that we all managed to do this together because um they had spent like every year seeing these oil fields go through and get approved and no one like and no one reacts to it really because like everyone had like felt so defeated by it and um, because they've been campaigning about it for so long but that's what we mean about tipping points like things come together and it's only because of their work for so long that we've been able to like have this win but um I mean it's 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 amazing because it shows it really is like an example of like how collective action can work and how like a mix of direct action campaigning like ev- a mix of every tactic together is what will really kind of get the goods we didn't just focus on like one thing it wasn't just direct action like protesting it wasn't just like a media campaign it wasn't just like a petition it wasn't just like talking to mps and getting insiders it wasn't all of that it wasn't any one of those things it was all of those things it was all of those things together that's what's i think really interesting about your approach because usually you know on the left we will have big debates about whether or not we should do direct action or engage Mm -hmm. with like you know existing institutions or engage with the media and usually people get very like emotional about which one of these is the correct thing to do but actually you've taken a step back looked at the whole terrain very strategically and said you're going to engage in all of these things where possible just Mm -hmm. from a kind of completely objective perspective and that's very laudable and quite rare and I think it's because we had like we just had such a brilliant like coalition of of groups who come together Mm -hmm. and like um, who did have all these different skills and were willing to put them in. And I think that that's what we do need more of in our campaigning is to, yeah, just to be like strategic <laughs> with what we're doing. It's yeah. like, like, how can we hit this at every angle so that like Shell couldn't escape it, Sticker Point couldn't escape it, the government couldn't escape it. I mean, it's important for me to add here that like the campaign isn't like fully over yet because even mm. though Sticker Point um, like indefinitely um, paused the field, um the Sticker Point Energy has now been bought out by this other energy company called like Iktar Energy or something, which also is involved with like some really dodgy stuff in Israel, like really bad vibes. And they are like now have now announced that they're like thinking about it again, but they still haven't found another backer. So it's a definitely a long time thing. Um, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And we've made a huge like delay to it, but it doesn't mean that the like the fight is over. I mean, the UK government kind of I think possibly in response to this campaign have now like almost like 
gone in ham about how much they're going to support North Sea oil and gas. Like they've been like with their stupid energy security strategy, which is a complete insult to, and is none of those things mm. in it, which, which what they should have been doing is thinking, okay, people are having a cost of living crisis, like 2.5 million households with children were plunged into energy poverty overnight. Like what people really need is something that's going to help them now. And um, what we should do is like invest in um, insulation and, and renewables and things. No, instead they're like, we're going to accelerate all of the 42 oil and gas projects that we were going to approve in the next couple of years. And we're going to make those be able to be approved quicker, um, which just makes no sense. But is them, I think, trying to fight back against what's happened is, is that there has been a big change in public opinion around oil and gas in the UK. And I think that what our reaction to this shouldn't be to like be like, oh, maybe it's, the fight's got a bit harder so we should step back it's like no we need to like dial it up even more because and we've you've shown got, them that we can win you've got another campaign now haven't you um the stop jackdaw campaign do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah sure so um we like managed to like delay cambo significantly um we thought we'd stop cambo but we've got, we've got a bit of ways to go but what's happening now is that in the next like month i think it's set to be or the next two months i think it's next month though the jackdaw gas field so this is like a massive gas field in the north sea is set to be approved the emissions from this field from this field alone would be five times the annual emissions of ghana which is and that shows the inequality that like exists in climate of like these that many of the countries that experience the most severe impacts of this climate crisis are contributing the least and countries like the UK from one single gas field will produce five times the emissions of an entire country that's being impacted the most and it's like a grave injustice and this um gas field is also owned it's owned 100% by Shell they're um, wanting to um, start work on it pretty soon. And what we need to do is kind of do what we did with Cambo and um, make it that everyone knows the name of Jackdaw, that everyone is like aware of it and that we're getting it in the media everywhere that we can. We're like doing loads of different actions. Um, I mean, at the moment, things that folks can do is we have like a template that you can send to your, your MP and we have a petition you can sign. We have like a Jackdaw selfie campaign that's going on. There are groups that are organizing like direct actions that you can get involved with. There's a welcome call for the Stop Cambo slash Stop Jackdaw campaign that happens every two weeks on a Wednesday. And you can find the um, information for that on our socials at Stop Cambo. But we just need as many people as possible to make this stuff happen because like the cha- change isn't this like passive thing. Things don't just get better. If, if we'd all just sat by and done nothing, then Cambo would be approved by now and they would already be extracting from it so what we need to do is realize that change is like this active process that requires all of us um, mm. and want to have a livable future i sadly it does require all of us i think to come together and act in whatever way we can and use whatever skills we have mm. um i was going to ask about what people can do so thank you for listening that we will put the links um, as to how people can get involved in those campaigns in the description to the episode uh, but i wanted to ask you about social media as well because you've obviously had a massive success using platforms like instagram and tiktok how have you found the like follow through from online to offline engagement on those platforms has it actually made it easy to like get people involved or has it been fairly superficial literally I joined TikTok like a week ago so I have no idea but like you can presumably inform me I mean I am definitely not great at TikTok at all I feel like that is a platform I do not understand but I think people do are doing amazing stuff on there like the the kind of information that's being shared on there is really amazing and like people have like managed to tangibly get people to take action off there which is really really cool um Instagram is what I've used the most and this is something that I like have worried about a lot is like, is, am I actually being helpful by using social media? Like this? Is this actually like having an impact outside? And this is something that I try and think about 
when I'm doing anything on anywhere is like, what is the actual impact being? Is there like an actual physical impact to this? Um, but one thing that was the most encouraging, I think for me was actually probably the Stop Cambo campaign and the Paid to Pollute campaign. So the Paid to Pollute campaign was basically myself and, and two other um, people took the UK government to court back in December. And that kind of campaign lasted for like a year before that, where we were talking about fossil fuel subsidies. So the court case was around the fact that the UK government gives billions like since 2016 they've given 4.2 or over 4.2 billion pounds of public money to north sea oil and gas companies which promotes them polluting companies like shell and bp haven't paid tax in some years we think this is ridiculous so we took the uk government to court around that and we had this but we also had the and one of the most important parts of it was like this big like media campaign and social media campaign to get people to talk about fossil fuel subsidies and through that following the Stop Cambo campaign and from the um, Pay to Pollute campaign and then being at COP in person, so much of my social media stuff had happened like over the pandemic where you couldn't even meet people in person. And then at the Stop Cambo actions or at COP, like meeting people in person who had like through my social media had started up their like own organizing group in their like local area around climate or around fossil fuel subsidies or around Cambo or like they joined a group for the first time just because of seeing this stuff or they've like like come up to a protest like we had a stop cambo protest where in one day like a few hundred people just came out of nowhere just because they'd seen it on social media and then got involved in organizing after i think that like the success of these campaigns and like seeing the kind of people like actually tell these stories like to me or to others who use social media for these reasons has really shown me that there is there is like a real there are like real impacts of these of using social media in these ways and it doesn't it's not just there's definitely um, a risk of it becoming that it's about like what the action looks like or what people share um, rather than what people actually do and if they organize. But I've tried to really be um, conscious of like making sure that if I'm posting anything, whilst awareness is really important, like making sure there's like an action link to it or making sure I'm sharing like groups people can actually go and, and organize with or be involved with and making it about more than just like awareness raising because I think that there's only so much that we can mm. like awareness isn't enough like we need people to organize as well and I think that's the hardest thing that I think a lot of us are trying to work out like how do we get people to go from when it comes to the climate like I think most people care about the climate change like came up about, like, the climate crisis the polls have shown like research has shown that like most people care about climate but how do we get people to go from caring to like taking time out of their weeks or months or days to join a group and organize and that's something that I I'm still working out but I think that just providing and making it a bit easier for people via social media mm. can actually help and just like to, yeah, to showing people like this is this is how you join a group like this is how you can do this, this your role yeah, is important definitely. obviously this all of this discussion is going to be framed in terms of now is the energy crisis and mm. inflation and the related cost of living crisis. So it's going to get to a point, we are already at a point where people are struggling to pay their energy bills, but when winter comes around, this is going to get so much worse. Mm. How have you, or have you been able to, let's say, you kind of mentioned this in passing that um, there had been some kind of link up between the the climate movement and like the labor movement, but Mm. what do you think we need to be doing, let's say, to link up more movement-oriented, like, social media-based, movements based around young people with the labor movement, traditional kind of like more traditional areas of class-based organizing, mm-hmm. link up those issues and actually say the cost of living crisis is 
intimately linked with the climate crisis because a lot of what I'm seeing at the moment when I talk about this is people saying, oh, well, we've, we've got the cost of living crisis now because we haven't invested enough in fossil fuels. And it's all the fault of these kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, middle class green hippies who have told mm-hmm. us that we can't afford to, let's say, exploit North Sea oil or something. And, and that's mm-hmm. why we have to rely on Russia. And that's why prices are going up. So yeah, I'm thinking, how can we kind of try better both to link those narratives together and also link those movements together, which often seem to be at loggerheads. Yeah, I think it's it's such a shame that, that there is this like um, separation or this almost like a rivalry between two movements that are both fighting the same thing. Um, and I think that that's why I think it's really important for like climate groups, especially to like reach out to groups who've been doing organizing around fuel poverty and other things like that for such a long time and offer like support and, and and have conversations between them because I think that this this separation definitely doesn't help. But I think a big part of this is also like myth busting and like realizing that a lot of these narratives are actually coming from the fossil fuel industry and not really like and aren't and are just lies. Like the like kind of fuel prices are actually set on like a global market, which I think can sound really confusing. But basically that means that it's based on like the whole world, like how much what's the cost of oil and gas in the whole world as to how expensive things are. So even producing more um, oil and gas in the North Sea wouldn't actually have an impact on the price and it wouldn't have an impact on this crisis. Now, what would have an impact on this crisis though would be if people actually had like heat pumps in their houses or if people had, if, if, or if we were more mm-hmm. reliant on renewables instead. I was talking about this on this um, the Sky News Daily Climate Show and bef- on the programme before, they interviewed a lady who had a um, heat pump in her house and she was talking about how she doesn't have any fluctuations in her prices. And that made me really think about like how, if we had just had a focus on that, people wouldn't be dealing with the same amount of um, fuel poverty that they are now because, and that's something the government could have done. Like it's a choice not to do it. So I think that it's like the, at the benefit of these fossil fuel companies and of this government that is literally in the pocket of these companies. I mean, the Tories have taken like over 400,000 pounds in um, donations from these companies just in like a few months last year, just before these new licenses were being, for oil and gas projects were being approved. I mean, Priti Patel has taken huge amounts of money from the fossil fuel industry as well. Like all of them are just in the pockets of this industry. And these arguments... Like, it's the same thing as, like, it's just divide and conquer. It's trying to, like, separate all of us from each other and make us think that, like, another group organizing for justice is the enemy. And I, But I can also understand that because I think that there has been a huge lack for a long time in the climate movement of, like, including, like, narratives of other liberation struggles within the climate conversation. There's been this kind of, like, tunnel vision on emissions and tunnel vision on, like, ecological stuff or climate um that hasn't really and hasn't enough like reached out in coalition with with groups that have been fighting fighting these other issues and i think that, that what needs to be done is there needs to be some like and i think it is happening and then one thing that's happening with this um cost of living crisis we've seen it happening quite a lot which is really brilliant to see is that loads of groups are coming together and working out like how can we how can we work together um and how can we create a world that actually has a just transition that like centers all of our rights and workers' rights and justice, mm. but also like tackles the climate crisis. And I think that more and more we're realizing, I think groups are realizing that like all of our liberation is intertwined and that we do need to work together if we're going to do that. Yeah, but that requires there being more spaces where like it's intended for there to be coalitions to be built there. I thought that COP26 coalition did this really, really brilliantly, like over the COP period and kind of beyond of like creating a space where 
like at the um, big march in Glasgow, it was just amazing to walk around and see that there was like a union block and there was like a block for like health workers and a block for like every different group of people that were there coming together um, to like kind of push what their view of liberation is, but under like this understanding that the climate crisis is something that all of us have to tackle. But I think that like a big part of this is just like calling out the bullshit when it's being put out there, like calling out the government's like complete just lies about this stuff because Mm. it only acts to like serve their interests and it only acts to to divide all of us and yeah it's just really important that we realize that yeah more oil and gas isn't actually going to help anyone but the oil and gas companies and the government like more oil and gas won't help the families that are struggling right now all it will do is going to it's going to make it more likely that we'll have crises like this in the future and then what we need to do is is tackle the crisis itself we need to also realize that all of these crises are coming because we live under this economic system of capitalism that breeds on crisis and that creates crises i think that we just need to go to the source and tackle it there and realize that yeah we need complete transformation if we are mm. going to have a better world for all of us something that's really bringing these issues to the fore right now i mean there's always something going on which shows the like immediate impact of climate breakdown but something that we're seeing that is really just disturbing are the the extreme temperatures across india and pakistan right now so there's surface Mm. temperatures of up to 60 degrees celsius in some places and you've got like a billion people living in temperatures of 40 degrees plus this Mm. is such a struggle for our politics to communicate because those kinds of temperatures, that kind of experience is just completely unimaginable to most people. And up to now, the messaging from the climate movement has very self-consciously been like, we're all in this together. No one can escape the impact of climate breakdown. You know, not even the elite can escape the impact of climate breakdown. It's going to hurt all of us. And that's understandable because it's about building a coalition. It's about building a wider movement, trying to kind of encourage us to identify the fate, our fate with those of, you know, people who are live very different lives to us. But we are now seeing this very, very clear pattern, which was always going to emerge mm. of, okay, climate change is already with us, climate breakdown is already with us, and it is disproportionately affecting the global south, it is disproportionately affecting parts of the world that have done the least to cause it. Do we need to start shifting the message here towards focusing on the uneven impact of climate breakdown? Or is that actually going to be less than helpful because it will kind of break up the coalition a bit and say you will it endangers the holism of the movement and the kind of global nature of the movement and potentially could feed into messaging on the far right that says okay well climate change is happening over there so let's just put Mm. our walls and stop people from coming over here i personally don't think i don't like the like we're all in one boat narrative of climate because it's just wrong like Mm. we're not all in one boat like some some of us are in like massive like ocean liners like fueled by colonial wealth and others are in like tiny rafts that like have been deliberately harmed and underdeveloped by colonialism that have funded those same massive yacht the rest of us are in um and made much safer so it's not we're not all in the same boat at all um and there's a reason why like it's a it's not like it's by accident as well it's like this also like deliberate underdevelopment of so many countries that have meant that like there's not enough resilience to this crisis that hasn't been caused by them like I don't know it just makes me really sad to think like how so many of these countries were deliberately like exploited and underdeveloped by colonialism then were given independence from these colonial powers and so kind of they, these climate powers wash their hands of responsibility and then there's now a climate crisis impacting these countries where they don't have the infrastructure or the wealth um monetary wealth in order to like respond to it because of this like historical and present exploitation 
And we can't like not be aware of that. Like we can't ignore that. And I understand the kind of, and this, it is it is difficult to find that, like where is that sweet spot, I guess, between acknowledging the reality that that is the reality and that what we need is like things like reparations and we need like loss and damage funds and we need um, finance to be going towards these countries that are facing the, the most impacts and have been, um, and have contributed the least. But also like realizing that, sadly how people care about things a lot of the time is them being impacted so like how to also include the fact that obviously no one is fully safe i mean the billionaires have their bunkers as we found out (laughs) during the pandemic so maybe they'll just head off there when things get rough but um the majority of us are like are going to like we are going to be impacted all of us are going to be impacted by the climate crisis in different ways all of us will be being impacted already i mean the projections that we're seeing if we don't like tackle this crisis is we're having like crop failure within very much within our lifetimes like our food systems will collapse so many nations will be like submerged by by water that will have an impact on on all of us but I think it's important for us to realize that like lots of the worst impacts are happening right now to many nations that we have a connection to and it's important for us to like stand in solidarity with those nations by prioritizing them when there are like conferences kind of COP26 or COP27 that's coming so COP27 that's coming up in Egypt um it's really important that there's a focus on loss and damage funds so that's basically climate reparations it's saying like countries in the global north have contributed the most to this climate crisis and you've impact and that's impacting these other countries the most and therefore there needs to be some sort of like transfer of money to allow for adaptation to these impacts yeah, I don't I think I don't have the the answer to how to communicate that the best, but I think that there's a quote that I do think about a lot and I think that coalition building doesn't mean doesn't have to mean that it's equally as shit for everyone. It just has to mm. mean that like like from the quote from Fred Morton that I'm going to definitely butcher here, but um about how like it's recognizing that also can I swear? Yeah, yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's realizing that like just because it's fucked up for me like means it's also going to be fucked up for you and like the coalition comes out of that like recognition that like it doesn't have to be equally as bad for us to like care about tackling it it just has to realize that it is actually harming all of us in different ways Mm, it's a message of of solidarity basically which extends beyond just compassion to the recognition that our fates as people who live under capitalism and do not own capital are highly intertwined and actually even Mm. those who own capital because sure you can go off to your bunker and try and Mm. wait out the climate crisis but realistically like what kind of world is that going to be and like the elite are aware of that now they are discussing it at Davos they're discussing the threat of revolution and how to do the minimal amount they can to offset that so that politics of solidarity of recognizing that we all are in it together historically often framed in class terms and that class Mm -hmm. perspective is often a bit missing in the kind of ecological discourse but on class terms on terms of race gender etc it yeah it extends beyond just saying be compassionate be nice uh, to Mm -hmm. like recognize that we're all intertwined even if we aren't all like potentially suffering the same fate i think also one thing that i really just want people to really just sit with is just the fact that like I don't know with the climate I think there's almost this like people think that either we like act on climate change or everything just stays the same and it's like actually the reality is and Naomi Klein says this really brilliantly in in her book this changes everything is like that everything about this world is going to change in some way because of the climate crisis like Mm -hmm. we aren't gonna the world as we know it now will never be this way again like 
no matter what happens, like whether we act or we don't act, like the world is going to drastically change. Either it's going to change for the worst or it could possibly change so it's better for all of us. And we actually have that choice. Like all of us actually have that choice in so many ways. In, and that choice for kind of us as individuals is to like, is to join a movement and to and to get involved in being part of the change to make it a bit better. Because yeah, the world isn't, it's not gonna, I don't, I definitely don't wish the world would just stay as it is now, but like that, mm. that might be, I guess, a bit better than the worst of climate breakdown. But what inspired me to get into climate organizing was, was because of climate justice, because I had thought for so long that the choices that we had was either the world as it is now continues or we have complete climate destruction. And this world that's built on exploitation and on white supremacy and on capitalism and all of these other like systems that cause so much harm to so many different people, like the thought of that world just persisting doesn't feel hopeful to me. Like, I'm not saying that I want climate breakdown. I'm just saying that that doesn't feel, that didn't motivate me to like fight or to do something. What motivated me was this, this vision of something better, like this Mm. vision of a more liberated world, this vision of climate justice of where we've actually tackled all of these systems and made something better because that's something worth fighting for. Like I'm not fighting for like the perseverance of this world. I'm fighting for something else to kind of come from the ashes of it. And I think that I want more people to recognize that because I think that that's the kind of thing that will motivate you to want to change things. Cause why would we not want a better world? We literally have kind of the opportunity to do that with climate and with the, with climate justice. And we can do that. So we, we really, really, we can't like let this opportunity side away. Yeah, things are changing. And it is, as Rosa Luxemburg once said, you know, socialism or barbarism, eco-socialism or eco-fascism. Mm-hmm. The other challenge, I guess, is when you say things like everything is going to change, it's just a question of how it changes. There is this potential that particularly among the kind of petit bourgeois, like lower middle classes for whom survival and like the maintenance of an existing standard of living is a, a, an ongoing struggle that mm. they interpret that as okay well I need to make sure that I hold on to what I have here and that is of course mm. like a big feature of neoliberal politics it's encouraging you to identify with let's say like being a homeowner or having a big pension or whatever and then interpreting any big program of social transformation as a a threat to take that away. So if everything is changing, then why not vote for Marine Le Pen, who's going to like rigidly fight off any threats to the status quo and like give you some hope that at least in your lifetime, you'll be able to keep the things that you have. I feel like this is Mm. the real political danger that we actually face today, rather than a kind of resurgent, you know, free market orthodoxy of the kind that we saw really strongly coming out in the 1980s it's almost the same conditions as we saw with the emergence of fascism in the 1930s that's why it's really difficult to talk about climate sometimes because when you talk about the fear stuff of like when you tell people about how bad things are going to be like people's fear reactions is often to like jump to isolationism and protection and like protect yourself and to like remove yourself from like a collective space and that and that's the opposite of what we actually need. But then it's it's hard because it's like, how how do we communicate that like this is going to happen within our lifetimes? Like to there aren't that many people on the earth with which this won't happen on their lifetimes. These things are gonna happen in the next like 
decade or a couple of decades that we're going to see the, some of the worst impacts of the climate crisis. And I, I think things are just going to, and we saw this with the cost of living crisis, things have, the, the world changed dramatically for a lot of people in a very short space of time, like in material, in material sense of how people are able to live their lives. And I think that it's just, I think it's really hard to know how best to communicate this. And I'm, and I lean on other groups that are doing this really well. Like I think of like how platform is trying to do this kind of communication work um, with, especially with workers and like with those kind of communities and how many other groups are trying to like focus on. I mean, even recently there's been a lot of like climate group groups coming together and realizing that in the face of kind of the resurgence of a lot of far right politics and other different issues and with this cost of living crisis, like how can we communicate climate in a way that unites people rather than causes more isolationism and division and I think that that is that is really that's really difficult (laughs) and there's no like easy answer to it um but I think that it's just recognizing and and meeting people where they're at like I always say when we're talking about even if you're talking to someone that you know about like climate you're like oh what do they already care about and how can you reach people on that level Mm. rather than just trying to get them to care about what you care about so like with different groups of people thinking, okay, what's something that this group already care about? Like what's something that's already cares about, uh, they already like really are invested in and, and what they really want for their family or for themselves. And then you will be able to find a way that climate links inherently to that. Um, and that's what we need to be doing more is meet, meeting, people, meeting people where they're at rather than just trying to like shout the different statistics or science at people mm. when they aren't, when that's not connecting to people. I think that's, I think that's a big problem that the climate movement has had is this almost like righteousness of like, well, we know that we're right <laughs> and we know that this is what's happening and we know that the science is blah, blah. And so we're just going to tell that to you and wait for you to care about that. When actually like what we need to be doing is being like, okay, you don't already care about that and that's fine. What do you care about and how can we reach you where you're at? And I think that that's a much more effective like way to communicate um, and that'll be different for different people. Totally. Um, and on that note, I think we will end the conversation there. Thank you so much, Michaela, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It was so great and so just hopeful talking to you. I mean, it's really encouraging to hear someone who's like on the front line of this struggle and young, because <laughs> I think there were a lot of us who were like, oh shit, we all came up during this very particular political moment. And is there going to be space for like the emergence of a new generation of like activists when so many of these spaces are now closed off, like the Labour Party's closed off, Mm -hmm. the media is closed off. But Mm -hmm. it's been so great seeing people like you create those spaces themselves, which is actually the thing that we should have been doing from the start. So thank you. (laughs) Honestly, thank you so much for having me. This has like spurred so many thoughts in my brain that you probably hear as I was thinking. (laughs) That's great. I think about things. Um, But I think also another thing I want to say is, is just that like anyone who's been organizing to like try and tackle capitalism in whatever way you've been doing it or trying to fight for liberation for any different group, like that work has been climate work. Like that work is climate justice work. And so I don't think the the climate movement isn't saying that everyone needs to just like dump liberation work that they're doing already it's just like realizing that that is part of it like a fight for like to be able to live and have dignity is part of climate justice like a fight for workers rights is is part of climate justice and it it all can be if we work together and if we realize those connections and so like thank you to everyone who's been doing this work for far longer than i have um because yeah we're all really grateful for it and we're all better off for it thanks so much michaela 